The craziest two months, maybe in American political history, are upon us. I'm Matt Robeson. and it's the Balance of Power Roundtable. I am myself, and I'm joined, as always, by Alicia Preston, our conservative commentator, analyst, and political consultant, and former two-term Democratic U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes. Welcome to 2024, and boy, we are going to get started with a bang. The next two months of the political calendar are absolutely bonkers, and we will get to that topic in just a minute. But we've got to start with the ruling that rocked the political firmament leading into the weekend from our old friend, our former guest on this show, Maine Secretary of State Shanna Bellows, my old colleague, my old economist colleague, back when we were economists, issuing a ruling that Donald Trump can't appear on the ballot in Maine because he fomented an insurrection, and that's not allowed by the Constitution, according to the 14th Amendment. Paul, you're our legal analyst. You're a former prosecutor. You know all things when it comes to the law. We trust your judgment. <laughs> what was your reaction here? Good for Shanna Bellows. Although Newsweek, either the dot-com or the magazine, raked her over the coals with legal. The headline was something like, legal analysts call her opinion comical and unsupported. Or Ooh, unsupported you know what? I also write comical. for Newsweek. I am as soon as we're done, I'm going to write to my editor at Newsweek and I am going send me that article. I'm gonna go defend Shenna. But go and ahead. There you go. So I mean, I've tiptoed through the tulips uh of the opinion itself, and I find it neither unsupported nor comical. I think uh, she's uh done a pretty remarkable and clear job in terms of her legal analysis of dealing with the challenges that arose in Maine to including Trump on the ballot. She concluded that he was an officer of the United States. She concluded that the provision under which the insurrection clause occurs is essentially self-executing, that it doesn't need congressional approval. She concluded and that her proceeding was not a legal proceeding governed by the rules of evidence, uh, which is very important because she then was free to take in all the available sources and resources, irrespective of whether or not uh, they were presented to her in an evidentiary hearing or not. She recites in her opinion everything that happened leading up to her opinion, and she concludes from all the evidence that she has that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection within the meaning of the clause that has caused so much Sturm und Drang in the political firmament. And her opinion, of course, comes after the Colorado opinion. And by the way, she gave all the all those involved in the proceeding the opportunity to submit further briefs on this matter after the Colorado opinion came in. So everybody had uh, the benefit or detriment of the Colorado opinion. And she ended up and concluded that the U.S. Constitution quote, does not tolerate an assault on the foundations of our government. And Section 336 requires me to act in response. And she finds Trump's primary petition invalid. So it's a, but I, let me just say that it's, yeah. I think it's a opinion. Let me just see. It's 34 pages long. There is, there's lots of legal reasoning and precedent cited 
and I, it's not unsupported. It's certainly not comical. And it is the second opinion that keeps Trump off or purports to keep Trump off the primary ballot in a state. Whether or not it holds up on state appeal, we don't know. Uh, whether or not the Supreme Court ends up with it, it seems, I think, likely. It's not going to be necessarily very timely, and ultimately it may be the voters who, who decide. But as legal precedent, uh, I don't know about you guys, but I don't remember any other instance in American history where a former president has been kept off a primary ballot in any state because he engaged in insurrection. So it's a, I think it's important historically and it's important legally. There is some precedent here, not with a former president, but remember last year that Cowboys for Trump co-founder Cooey Griffin was removed from his elected position as Otero County Commissioner under the only successful case brought so far under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment since 1869, since the Civil War. So Alicia, I mean, just to kind of remind ourselves here, the language of the 14th Amendment, I'm going to just give the key parts here. No person shall hold any office, civil or military, under the United States, who having previously taken an oath as an officer of the United States to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, it does seem like a pretty plain language, originalist reading of the Constitution. What was your sense of it? I don't believe the forefathers ever in any way intended, with all the protections they took against authoritarianism in the Constitution, ever intended for one individual to have the power to remove someone from the ballot. I just don't believe that. I don't believe that was ever the intention of any founding father under this or any other part of the Constitution. Look, I don't want Donald Trump on the ballot. Certainly don't want him in the White House, but no secretary of state has the right to unilaterally remove someone from a ballot. I, I just don't believe that was intention. I believe this will falter in the courts. I don't believe Colorado's court had the right to do what they did, yet at least that's through a court system. Do I think Donald Trump participated in an act of insurrection? Absolutely. But for him to be found guilty of such and be punished as such, and this would be a punishment, it has to have due process, of which neither in Colorado nor in Maine was that given due process. Was he charged and convicted of being, being an insurrection? He's not even charged by that in Jack Smith's case, which I wish he were, but he's not. So no, I don't believe that there is the authority to remove him from the ballot unless or until he is convicted through due process in a court. So well, what do you make of that? Yeah, I want to wheel that over to you, but let me just yeah. set up this piece because in Colorado, the court, the appeals court, explicitly, there you go. There's a new word. We're good at making up words every week. We have the annulator, we have excoriate, and, and now we have explicitly. All the right, annulator explicitly excoriated Matt Robeson for the way, a slip of the see, tongue. Did you see Martin excoriate directed Killers of the Flower Moon? It was great. All right. It's, so the, the court explicitly cited Neil Gorsuch. That is a tongue twister. And his earlier 2012 opinion which said that a secretary of state or a state, the officer of the state that's being the secretary of state, could bar someone from the ballot who was clearly constitutionally ineligible 
to hold that office. Now, in that case, the person who was being barred was not a citizen of the United States. There's also an earlier precedent in California with a man who was 27 years old and therefore also not constitutionally eligible to occupy the office for which he wanted to run. And so those seem a little bit more clear cut. So Paul, I do want to turn this back to you. That does seem to be a distinction because here, as Alicia's saying, our good friend Shenna really did have to make a finding of fact, did need to determine on her lonesome that Donald Trump was engaged in an insurrection. She did make that finding. And she said, the rules of evidence don't apply here. There's not the procedure that would go with a court case. There's not the opportunity for Donald Trump or his attorneys to zealously defend the interests of their client and to make their case and see the evidence against him. Does that distinction matter here? I, I appreciate the attempt to cast the decision by the main secretary of state in legal terms, but it unfortunately or fortunately conflates proceedings and what rules apply. Let me just refer back to what Shana Bellows said in her opinion. Complexity is not a limitation on my authority under Maine law. Other statutes don't suggest I'm restricted to adjudicating straightforward questions of law or fact, nor do I have the discretion to decline to rule in ballot qualifications cases simply because they present difficult issues. So she didn't raise these issues on their own. They came to her from citizens who raised issues around the ballot disqualification. So she didn't act unilaterally in doing this. She was ruling on challenges that were brought by citizens of Maine. Then she says the statutes instead reflect that Maine has joined other states in choosing to enforce Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, and in so doing, the Maine legislature has, legislature has delegated the authority to me, and she cites a number of cases. And then she goes on to discuss the due process arguments. She says, Mr. Trump's concerns, and apparently our annihilator's concerns, about the adequacy of the proceeding are therefore without merit. He has Wait, the Slow that last part down for me, because this is, I think, I think Alicia and I reflect the feelings of, boy, I'm going to sound like Trump here. A lot of people are saying, uh, a lot of people saying, are saying, doesn't it saying. feel, yeah, right. Doesn't it seem a little weird that there can be what feels like a finding of fact by our good friend, Shenna? So let me tell you how she deals with it. Yeah, how does she worm her way around she, that? De she deals with it in very straightforward fashion. She says he has had the opportunity to present evidence, to call witnesses, to cross-examine, and to argue at length both the legal and factual issues germane to my decision. She held an evidentiary hearing. Mr. Trump was represented by counsel. He had the opportunity to present witnesses and cross-examine. He had essentially a court-like proceeding. She says, while the timeline of the proceedings has by necessity been compressed, this is hardly the first time Mr. Trump or his lawyer has confronted the applicability of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to a presidential candidate. It is likewise not the first time that Mr. Trump has had to grapple with whether the evidence presented here, which almost directly mirrors that which was offered in Anderson, i.e. the Colorado case, mm -hmm. demonstrates that he engaged in insurrection. And 
Crucially, Mr. Trump has the opportunity to appeal my decision, providing him with additional process in both the superior court, the upper, the basic trial court level in Maine, and the law court, Maine Supreme Court. So she. All right. So let me just boil that back to you. So what you're saying is, he has gotten due process, just not under the rules of evidence that would be applied as part of the court system. He has gotten a judicial-like proceeding. This isn't like a star chamber here. This is a, he's had the ability to present evidence, to see what's against him, and for his lawyers to make arguments. He has gotten all the process to which he is due. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. I think, be that as it may, I still, boy, I still feel a little sense of conflict about this because we are still making a determination not through our court system, not through our court of law. And I know there are different courts systems in the United States. We have the Marshall Court. We have courts martial for members of the armed services. We have we have civilian procedure, we, we have civil procedure. We have criminal procedure. We have appellate procedure. We have state procedure. So there's not like one handed down I give you these 15, uh, 10, 10 commandments on procedure. I, I, I hear you. I But let me look. So look, no, I'm, no, I'm agreeing with that point. I'm yeah. agreeing with you. I, so, I'm saying it's not like there has to be one all fired procedure. That let me give you, a, let me give you an analogy. Okay. So here we have a question of federal law under the United States constitution. I recall recently that there was a question of federal law under the United States Constitution that had to do with the right of a woman to have an abortion. And our Supreme Court, in its wisdom, said, hey, basically, this isn't a federal question. This is a question for each state to decide mm. under its own rules for its own legislature and its own courts to deal with. Hands off, ladies, go to the states. So in terms of voting procedure, the procedures for voting, the federal law has been very clear. It's up to the 50 states to design how they do their voting, to control the way voting happens, and each of the states has a slightly different procedure. So the, and, and it's up to the Secretary of State in each state generally to monitor, control, the primary procedure, the election procedures, the voting procedures. There is nothing unusual about a secretary of state ruling on qualifications of a would-be candidate to be on the primary ballot, except that we've got this case of first impression with a former president who is in who has engaged in insurrection. And we now have two state state. We now have two state bodies which have found that he engaged in insurrection and therefore should not be allowed to run uh, for the office of presidency. All right. Let me put this in a Leslie Nope kind of way, which is let's stipulate that the states can for a second. Let's get to the question of whether the states should or whether we in toto should take this path. Now, this is something that Tim Snyder, the Yale professor, who's actually, he's a good read, he's got a good substack. He's argued that this is essentially the pitchfork ruling. The argument that analysts have been making loudly, and this includes Democrats and Republicans, is okay. Maybe the language of the 14th Amendment 
is pretty clear. And maybe, as Paul, you say, states and secretaries of state or court systems have the ability to bar Trump from the ballot. But we should not do this because if Trump does not have the opportunity to be evaluated by the voters for what he's done and for the voters to ultimately make the decision, then the voters will rise up with pitchforks and there will be anarchy and there will be another civil war and that is a bad path to go down. So their argument is we can, but we should not. And Tim Snyder says, that's a bunch of malarkey. What you're essentially saying is, oh, we should not follow the rules that we've set forth in the Constitution whenever people might get upset about it. All right, Alicia, that's the argument that's been dominating the cable airwaves. Where do you come down on that? I'm going to go back to I don't think they can. I think both of these states are going to get overturned either in their state courts or the United States Supreme Court, because I don't, again, believe our forefathers ever intended one person to hold the power to take away the right to vote from the people, which is what this is. That being said, I also don't think they should. There's 91 charges against this man. Let the court system play out. Let people vote for who they want to vote for. And and let's, from my perspective, hope it's not Donald Trump. But you have to let the system take place or you're doing exactly what he's saying, which is election interference. Why are we giving that win to him? Of course we shouldn't do it politically. Forget about the legal and constitutional aspects of it. Politically, it's stupid. It is literally playing right into his hand of election interference. And I just think it's a terrible idea all around. So let me just briefly say this. You've got a Republican Party, which is now a cult of Donald Trump. Since uh, January 6th, uh, recent polling tells us that the Republicans and Trump have doubled down, more favorable towards the January 6th rioters, less concerned about, quote, the violence that occurred. You've already got the pitchforks in this country. They are out. And they're, the flames are being fanned by a would-be dictator. You've got a very clear question. Dictatorship? or democracy. That is just about all that's on the ballot. And as it happens, we have a constitution. And for those who are strict constructionists in the Republican Party, or who used to be before they became activists who could ignore the constitution, when the federal constitution says something, we generally believe it and follow its strictures. The language of the provision about insurrection is absolutely clear language. And clearly, it doesn't call for Congress to act or a criminal conviction to be the prerequisite for a determination about whether or not somebody can stand for presidency. Trump is and should be disqualified. Now, I say that at my peril because... It may raise a few pitchforks. But if we don't stand for the rule of law and against the rule of pitchforks, then what good is our democracy? Just as the court system is taking care of the 91 criminal charges against Trump, so are these two jurisdictions taking care under the 14th Amendment to do what they are empowered to do. There's an irony of throwing away democracy in the name of trying to protect her, which is what this is doing. But what about the argument that Tim Snyder makes, which is that we'd essentially be doing the opposite. We'd essentially be saying, look, the Constitution is clear that Donald Trump doesn't qualify for the ballot. And, and the Constitution is clear that states can make this determination, even though you and I think, Alicia, share the feeling that doesn't feel right. 
it's still the language of the Constitution that states can make this determination. And in fact, as the conservative legal scholars who got this whole ball rolling themselves said, it's self-executing. States can do this. He doesn't even need to be convicted, even though you and I feel like he should be first. He should be. I disagree with that assessment. I mean, I, the, but the that's 14th the argument. Amendment, I know it's the argument. The 14th Amendment says he's committed, in this case, he's committed insurrection. That has to be a determination of fact. What is very unclear is who de determines that fact. And I would argue that if you look at the totality of the Constitution, if you look at the historic nature of what our forefathers were trying to prevent when they wrote it against authoritarianism, against the power of one person to do pretty much anything, that determinant of fact has to be through a due process. And, right. and that's what I would argue. And Snyder's argument here is if the Supreme Court looks at these cases and says the language the plain language reading, the original intent, because they're dominated by, quote, originalists, the original intent is clear. The Constitution is clear. But nonetheless, we're not going to vote to keep Trump off the ballot here. We're not going to uphold these rulings and determinations in these states because of the fear of the pitchforks. That is what would undermine democracy the most, because then what you're essentially saying is we only apply the rule of law except when it might upset some people. And we have seen the direction that we go in this country and around the world when we give in to that kind of mob rule. That is, in essence, turning our country over to the strongmen and the insurrectionists and the authoritarians. I actually, I agree with his argument in that case. All that being said, I also agree with you, Alicia. I think that ultimately the, the, the Supreme Court justices are smart enough to see that there are problems either way here. And they're probably, I, Paul, I, tell me if you disagree with this, they're probably going to find a way to issue a narrow ruling that preserves Trump's ballot access without making a, a further reaching determination on the 14th Amendment. I don't think they want to get into that. And I don't think they want to get into the game where they say, yep, the states can just go ahead and do this. Because I think down that road really does lead anarchy, We've already seen copycat kind of inverse appeals to secretaries of state to remove Joe Biden from the ballot. That would all accelerate in the red states. And I do think that there would be massive problems. I just don't, I ultimately don't think that this is a way out of this. I just don't. So, I think there's going to be a narrow ruling. Without engaging in both sidesism, who has undermined faith in the electoral system? Shayna Bellows or Donald Trump? And the answer is Donald Trump. Shayna Bellows has followed the law, both the federal law, she's followed state law. She has given due process to Donald Trump on this narrow issue. She hasn't adjudged him to be criminally liable or guilty of anything. She has said he committed insurrection and is therefore not eligible to be on the ballot. That's um, guilty of something. And that's not that's, right, that's not guilty. And it's not necessarily a punishment. Maybe it's a gift because, I mean, Donald Trump ought to just disappear into the sunset. So we can't get into I'm not concerned about whether it's a, quote, punishment. It's a certainly a ruling about a candidate. It's not necessarily a personal punishment of any kind. She said he can't appear on the ballot because of what the law says. And so, I mean, I may be a strict constructionist when it comes to applying the law to both former presidents as well as others. Uh, but Donald Trump is not exempt from the rule of law. And Matt, I agree with you. The Supreme Court may very well 
squirm and we find some way out of this. I just find, I would find, we'll find it. We won't find it curious. We'll say, of course, they were always going to wriggle their way out of this. That wouldn't be unexpected with this Supreme Court. But I come back to the rule of law must prevail. And in this case, we've had the rule of law and it's prevailing. Let's just be real practical about this for a second, though, because you said something interesting in there, Paul, that it might be a gift. And this might all be a gift to Trump. Trump is essentially campaigning on the idea that all of these legal cases against him, all of the 91 counts, felony counts standing against him, all of the four uh, indictments, it's all witch hunt. It's all election interference, as you said. And the fact of the matter is Colorado and Maine don't matter for squat. They certainly don't matter in the nomination process. I mean, let's not pretend, and none of us are, that the nomination process, which is entirely determined by the parties, is in some way sacrosanct. The rules of how you vote for and nominate presidential candidates for the parties are always changing. They're always getting juked by party insiders trying to put their thumb on the scale for one outcome or another. We know, listen to The Daily, the New York Times podcast today, in which Maggie Haberman lays out explicitly all of the rules changes that Donald Trump sycophants have applied in the states to make sure that he is the nominee. Look at the rules changes in Nevada. Look at the rules changes in California. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing pure about that process. At the end of the day, all that really matters is will he be on the ballot in the swing states? There are only five core swing states in America right now. There are 45 states have voted for the same party in the last two presidential elections. The five remaining states are Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Now you can add to that in Doug Sosnick's reckoning another former guest on our show, three states, Nevada, New Hampshire, and North Carolina. And those are kind of maybe cases, Nevada probably being the swingiest of those. So you've got six, maybe eight states that really matter. Come back to me when Donald Trump is in peril of losing his ballot position in the general election in those states. Otherwise, this is all academic. And frankly, it probably helps Trump politically more than anything else because it undergirds his basic political grievance case, his martyr complex, his I'm all that stands between you and the big bad forces of the deep state who really want to come after you, but instead they're coming through me, which is literally the line he's saying on the stump. So all of this probably doesn't really practically matter. It just, it, it doesn't matter at the end of the day. If anything, it probably helps Trump, but it doesn't have a real impact on the 2024 election. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Uh, on that glorious rant, let's move to the topic that we announced at the top of the show, which is the insane, congested, bonkers, off the rails schedule for the next two months. Let me read off a selection of the key dates (laughs) as we know them as of today over the next two months. So this is almost two months to the day. January 2nd, Trump's reply is due in the DC circuit appeal of whether or not he is immune for anything he does as president uh, and whether he can be uh, indicted at all. 
January 9th, the DC Circuit hears oral arguments in that Trump immunity appeal. January 10th, the CNN Republican debate in Iowa, which is likely to feature only Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley because no one else will make the threshold of 10% in three straight national polls. So it'll be a showdown between DeSantis and Haley. January 15th, the Iowa caucuses. January 18th, the ABC News Republican debate in New Hampshire, which again, may be a very small stage. January 19th, government funding runs out. Step one, because you might remember that in December, in order to dodge the issue, they agreed to a two-stage shutdown plan, like they, they would fund the government in two steps for, it's complicated, but that's what they decided to do. So part of the government funding runs out, step one, January 19th. January 21st, the CNN Republican uh, debate in New Hampshire, that's another Republican debate. January 23rd, the New Hampshire primary. February 2nd, government funding runs out, step two. February 8th, the Nevada GOP caucuses. February 13th, the uh, George Santos, New York three special election. February 24th, the GOP South Carolina primary. March 4th, the scheduled start of Trump's trial in DC and March 5th, Super Tuesday. Alicia, since so many of these apply to your party, the grand old party, the Republican party, she's which of the grand old party, she's a hot Your boys, your peeps. Which of these stands out to you as really significant? I don't know. There's a lot. I mean, I'd love to see the determination that's going to first be at the D.C. Circuit Court and eventually probably at the Supreme Court about whether Donald Trump can shoot someone in Fifth Avenue if he's president and not be held accountable to be resolved so we can all move on with our lives. Obviously, a president can't just do whatever the heck they want, legally or otherwise. Oh, you would think that's I mean, obvious, that's but this silly. is the Supreme Court we're talking about. Nah, they'll rule properly. I mean, that's just absurd on the face of it. Can you imagine what could happen if, I mean, they were not? I I yeah. Yeah. It's the Supreme Court. Yeah. It, yeah. We can, let's, we can all imagine that. Right. Okay, but go it's on. the Clarence let's... Thomas Supreme Court. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm actually not concerned that they're not going to rule properly, that of course a president isn't just a blanket immunity. Jimmy Thomas is writing the opinion right now. Right now, yeah. And I'm hopeful it'll be unanimous. That being said, I think all of this will push back the March 4th date of the, which is, you said March 4th, right? For the beginning March of March 4th, of the start of the Trump the trial. I think that will be pushed back and delayed. Didn't the judge put, you know, the process motions on hold until this question's resolved. So all those are going to have to come up. But I'm looking forward to January 23rd. I live in New Hampshire. I get to vote in the New Hampshire primary. And I am ever optimistic for a potential upset here in the Granite State. Nikki Haley's making some big moves. The numbers are tightening. I think the numbers are wrong to begin with. And I think with a proper campaigning of three weeks targeted on independence in particular in New Hampshire, I think we might see if not a win, an incredibly close second place for Nikki Haley, but I'm rooting for a win. We'll, we'll see if um, her slavery gaffe puts a little check on that momentum. Yeah, Paul, what stands out So here? I saw a great ad from Chris Christie last night. It was a full face Good. of Chris Christie, and he's pretty direct, pretty, pretty straightforward. And he says, so I'm the only candidate who's telling it like it is. Donald Trump is a liar. Donald Trump was a dictator. I'm the only guy who's who can who who's willing to say that. But did he, he bring up the fact that apparently Donald Trump smells like a butt? He did because say that. that has been in reports, and we've covered this on the Blue Amp channel, which I urge people to check out. Just because we only cover serious news on that channel, so well, whether did he get into that? How a candidate smells is actually 
perhaps one of the most important qualities that a candidate brings to any campaign. And if Donald Trump, in fact, smells like a butt, we don't see that. I rely on evidence. We we don't see that butt soaking. What smell. you're saying is we need a judicial proceeding. Odor we in the court. Odor in the court. Odor in the court. Those who cozy up to him do not seem to be repulsed by his butt smelling. So, I mean, so I can't speak to that. What I can speak to is it will be a shame if Chris Christie isn't on the Republican stage. Ron DeSantis is a disappointment. Nikki Haley is coming close. If I were the New Hampshire Democratic Party, New Hampshire Democrats, if you're listening, I would be spending all my time urging independents to pull a ballot on the Republican side and vote for Nikki Haley and, and in order to deny Donald Trump a shot. And Nikki Haley is a candidate, as scary as she is. And believe me, folks, she is scary. She's Donald Trump in a skirt. I would because she would have a better that shot. That is condescendingly misogynistic, but okay, please. Continue. No, that's not that condescending. She wears Come on, she, no, she does. A lady and wears skirts, and she also, she wear, also espouses many of the same opinions as Donald it, Trump. Yeah. So all I'm saying is politically, they they are they are they are uh, like corn in the cob. She's what you're trying to say, Paul. I think to take Alicia's point, what you're trying to say is Donald Trump is Nikki Haley in pants and a diaper. Donald Trump is Nikki Haley, but he smells. There we bad. go. Have we corrected matters? That's right. We, well, should, the, can I get, can I get very, a non-judicial ruling from you on whether that is a better formulation of discussion? Okay, I'm going to okay. choose. Look, I'm going to agree with Alicia. I'm going to choose of all these dates that the Supreme Court's event. It's a date that's not here on the menu when the Supreme Court eventually rules on whether or not Donald Trump is truly immune. That is going to be really important. And and I do think that the dynamic that's going to really drive the next few months is sort of the race against time about whether there is any real opportunity for Republican voters to save themselves. Alicia, you and I wrote in Newsweek in August that this is the last chance for the Republican Party to save itself. It is driving down the road to nominating Donald Trump for the third time after everything he's done, after Deborah Burks, his own COVID coordinator, said that he was personally responsible for the deaths of up to 400,000 Americans, after he led an insurrection against the United States, against the government of the United States, against the Constitution of the United States, after all of his lies and evils, after all that, the Republican Party is saying, that's our guy. And this is their last chance to save themselves from total, I can't pronounce the word, ign ignominy, ignominy. Well, excorciate, I think, is the way you just go with it. excorciate. Yeah, excorciate. It's, the, it's their last chance. And I think we're in a race against time here for will Republican voters start to do that before the judicial system catches up? Because, Alicia, I do think it's true that if the judicial system weighs in here and makes the decision for Republican voters, there will be a boomerang effect and they will tend to rally around them because they will feel like their decision and their rights are being taken away, and that will be ultimately bad. The final thing I'll say is it does, this whole thing just kind of takes me back to our last discussion about uh, whether or not the Pitchfork Caucus should determine judicial rulings. And it just, it strikes me as so incredibly, the, the argument surely cannot be that because Trump's base will react violently and angrily should he be convicted. Therefore, he should not be subject to the rule of law. That's essentially what the Pitchfork Caucus 
is arguing at this. And I, I do think that is, that's a meritorious argument. I, no one would say that when the Trump trial starts, the Jack Smith trial starts, well, we can't apply the rule of law because people will be upset and maybe violently upset. We've already seen oh. what happens when people get riled up. They invade the Capitol and kill people. Right. Hey. I mean, I don't know how to properly prevent what I think is a foregone conclusion if Donald Trump is convicted of anything, and that's that there will be people committing acts of violence on his behalf. I mean, he's called for it before. He'll welcome it again. He's a bad right. human being. He just is. He, he has no interest in calming the temperature of this country. He never has. He wants it to be at a fever pitch so he can go down on history being adored by cult members. Let's be honest. That's what he wants in the history books. He doesn't care about good, bad, or otherwise. And I don't think there's a way, unless you choose not to prosecute someone for 91 different charges that he is accused of, I don't see that there's a way to avoid the damage to come. Hey, can I throw in a, a pitch for two dates being potentially significant here since we're Congress nerds around here? I think the government funding running out both Again, it's split for weird reasons between January 19th and February 2nd, two rounds of this potentially. I think that's potentially significant. Now, Alicia, you are a good newser. You're an optimist. You're a glass half full. I'm a glass half full of poison kind of guy. You're a glass mm -hmm. half full of water kind of gal. You think you t you have tended to think in the past that Congress will find an escape hatch and we won't have a government shutdown. I'm just saying that the issues are as stuck as they were in December, and maybe even more so. The Republicans in the House are insisting on a pretty hard line immigration deal in order to agree to funding for Ukraine and Israel. And they're pushing for some major funding cuts in order to allow a budget to go through at all. And we're once again gonna be up against the political calculus of what do they think is in their best political interest? And it'll just, it will be interesting if the Republican primary process is still live, then you're gonna have Republican candidates running around the country taking a very conservative line on this and calling on Congress because there's no political downside to being as right-wing as possible for them. And so they're gonna be calling on Congress to hold the line here and we could be facing a shutdown and that would introduce a new dynamic into the whole political firmament. So I think those are still politically significant dates. Am I wrong? No, I think you're right. And I certainly am Pollyanna in the past. I'm less so this time around because of the players, because of the climate, the political climate. I'm still going to go with they'll find a way to make it happen. But I, I certainly think we're in more danger this cycle than we have been in the ones before because of all the politics surrounding it. Paul, you've been a member of – oh, you know what? Let's have uh, let's have Yarmouth back on the show, the former budget chairman. Let's ask him, what are the odds on a shutdown? What would you say before we do that? Man, this time around, I think they edge up. The odds edge up. I was pretty worried a couple of rounds ago. Then there seemed to be, they seemed to find a way. But now we have Mike Johnson in charge of the Republican caucus. And for better or for worse, he is a hardliner when it comes to whether he wants a functioning government or not. I think the odds of a shutdown edge up slightly. I mean, history tells us that there's always a way out of it. 
and we have heard that Joe Biden is is not immune, forgive my double negative, to considering some deal about the border uh, because we've got issues. And uh, it's not for lack of trying, but we've got issues there. So there may be some deal that can be cut, but these guys continue to be pretty crazy. It's volatile, I guess, is my major takeaway, is especially (laughs) until we have this special election in New York, we're talking about a, what is it currently, a three-seat majority that Mike Johnson enjoys and you have rumblings from the Freedom Caucus crowd that, hey, you saw what we did last time when we didn't like what Kevin McCarthy did on spending deals when he didn't take us over the fiscal cliff and crash the U.S. and world economy. We were for crash. We were pro-crash. And we don't like what Mike Johnson's doing this time. Now, maybe they'll just grumble. Maybe. It's possible. But they just took down a House speaker on less. And the latest rumblings out of the negotiations over the Ukraine and Israel funding that have to include some kind of an immigration deal are maybe things are are moving into less of a hardline position. And that means that the Republicans, the House won't accept it. So it looks like maybe that is going to ultimately fall apart. I'm just saying that it's very volatile. And we don't know. I think those dates are potentially very significant. That happy note, uh, we will wrap it up there. For Paul and Alicia, I am Matt. We will see you next time.